Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, I'm joined by Yenshi Shu. Yenshi is a reporter for the Flatwater Free Press in Omaha, Nebraska, the first statewide nonprofit newsroom in Nebraska. Yenshi is from southern China and went to college in Beijing. She got her master's from Missouri. She's been with the Free Press for a year. Before that, she was a courts and law reporter in North Carolina. Hi, Yenshi. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. So what's your journalism origin story? I was born and raised in China. So my parents actually moved from a more inland province. That's our hometown. And then we moved to a coastal city. And so I want to say when I was little, I kind of went through a lot of cultural shocks, even just like within China, because China is really big. And like the culture, like how people react to different things and especially just habits and things are very different. And so I just feel like I always had a in how things are and how people behave. So growing up, and then I was also really just interested in random facts and knowing all the interesting facts made me feel like, whoa, this is a, like cool. So that kind of made a lot of sense when I was trying to decide what kind of major I want to have in college and then and international journalism popped up. So I did international journalism for my college degree. Uh, and at that time, I wasn't really sure what I was trying to do, but I was just like browsing the internet, looking for cool projects in journalism that you could be doing. And I ran into Planet Money Makes a T-shirt. That's a multimedia project. And that really was such a fascinating project that like the project takes you from a bale of cotton in Mississippi to all the places that that like produce the t-shirts so like to like Colombia I believe Bangladesh and to like to see the people who produced uh, that t-shirt and so I just thought that like that story really made me care about not only the facts but like how things are and what kind of the there's labor issues. There's also like how, why things got it to how they are essentially. And so like through that, I kind of got more into multimedia storytelling, how to make people care essentially. And then just in, in grad school, I also kind of tried different things and realized that actually <laughs> I'm not that good at like certain things in multimedia. So I'll just like try to really hone in on one thing that's more in-depth investigative storytelling. And then because I just feel like the like weaving together different things is such a and then tell the stories is such a craft that that not a lot of people do it very well. And then just like trying to do it and tell people stories is just to me, I think it's the best job in the world. <laughs> I love the planet money aspect of this because that's what you talked about with the t-shirt business is something that they do regularly on their shows. I was actually just listening to one where they cut a record label and I've heard a couple of others recently and it's cool to know that people are inspired by that. 
was there anything from your upbringing or heritage that would have lent itself to telling stories? I think that the main part is trying to, like I said, my parents and I were from kind of a more inland province and then kind of we had to move to a coastal area because my parents lost their jobs like during this huge wave of kind of state-owned enterprise like it went down all of them a lot of them went down and so that we're kind of forced up through the family and so that really of course to me that's a lot of growth like you have to leave the people you're familiar with and then you're you you have to sort of navigate this whole new territory like because a lot of people in Guangzhou where I moved to when I was nine there's a dialect that's called Cantonese and then like so people kind of started speaking in a different dialect and then of course we eat a lot of spicy food in Hunan where I'm from but like he, here in Guang, like in Guangzhou like people like rarely eat spicy foods like a lot of different things that you have to kind of guess like get used to but also like how do you like interact with the locals here right and so as a kid I felt like that was my lessons and I tried to feel like since then I've always tried to be I've always tried to be a little more I guess aware of the, all the kind of differences in like in people and so like we all exist and in this world but also as human beings and try to treat people's differences with respect and so not to like judge people like that much and then if there's something that you find fascinating that could be a story I guess and so I I think that really paved the way like the fact that I I kind of moved to a different part even in China a different part of China kind of paved the way I think for my journalism career and because it kind of mentally prepared me for things that I kind of do regularly, like talking to people, striking up conversation with a stranger and all that. Did you did you learn English at a young age or were you raised learning English? No. So it's actually kind of interesting. Before I moved to Guangzhou, like there's barely any kind of English education in where I came from. And then so and then it was really a big shock, actually. So when I was nine, I moved to Guangzhou and then all of a sudden we had English lessons and I could barely understand anything. And so my mom kind of had locked me up in a, not really, but you know, she kind of said that, okay, you got to sit down and really learn English. And so she, I'm really glad that she kind of forced me to do it because I couldn't quite grasp the importance of it. And then like being able to like speak okay English definitely helped me a lot along the way for my career and all that. And being able to do journalism here. And so I am pretty grateful for my mom's decision at that time. So from China to Missouri for college, and then Missouri to North Carolina, and then Nebraska. Just take us through your, I kind of gave your path. Take us through how you came to be at the Flatwater Free Press. Yeah, so I went to Missouri for grad school. Because of course, IRE was there, or IRE still there. So I learned about IRE, and then I knew some folks from Beijing, or just the internet, really, that went there. And then a lot of them are really impressive. Like I, So I went to a lecture when I was still at my home university in Beijing, 
there's a data journalism lecture given by the Mizzou alumni who right now works for this paper in China and she's really awesome. And so, because she just, apparently she like knew what's going on with multimedia storytelling and data journalism and kind of really made the idea concrete that you can actually learn data journalism, how here's how you do it, how you like come up with all these things. And so, of course, it was very daunting for someone in China to like think about, oh, it's like, oh, like one day maybe I can like produce some of the work that they're doing, right? And so even that, I guess, really motivated me a ton or inspired me a ton. And so I went to Mizzou, tried a few different things. I was in convergence journalism. And so that's kind of more broadcast because I had a background in broadcast in China. And so that's like what I was like used to, I guess. And so, but then in broadcast, I kept telling myself, okay, I want to be, be doing more. I want to be doing more um, investigative stories and like data journalism stories and how do I do it? And so I kind of took more classes along those lines. And then I realized that I like, I could actually do just fine, like in like data journalism and learning how to code. But that's also because I try to teach myself how to code even before I went to Mizzou. And so it kind of, you connect dots backward and you realize that, okay, yeah, like those are some intentional decisions that you made. And I'm grateful that I found those resources and I took some online classes even from the Knight Center. The one that really helped me a ton is Andrew Trans, I think are for data journalists. And so I was just a, a summer class because that summer I had a very hard time even finding an internship. So I just took that class. And then so and then I was a data fellow for a year and a half at the investigative reporting workshop in DC because we at Mizzou has we have a program in DC so you go to a place so I interned at PolitiFact and then I stayed at the investigative reporting workshop for a year and a half as a data fellow just doing data because I always thought that okay maybe data is the way for me to go especially for foreigner how why would anyone hire you like to as a foreigner if I guess if like you didn't grow up here. There's a lot of new things you have to learn about, like how the government works, even how public education works and all that. So yeah, I definitely kind of made a more intentional choice to do data journalism in order to get into investigative and in-depth reporting. Of course, there's different directions you can go into for data journalism, but so there are different categories. You can produce visuals, you can do like development, but those jobs are more like developers, I want to say, and programmers and designers. And so just to put it kind of categorically, not super <laughs> scientific or, or or strict, I want to say like, um, you know, job descriptions, but I know that there are other data reporters who also can do visualizations and all that. So with that in mind, I wanted to do data reporting. So like using data to help me report. And so I guess I just kept doing some side projects at that time to help me find a job. And then it was a very hard time for me to 
even get a job in journalism, but it's interesting because I applied to a lot of data journalist jobs, but the the job I got at the time is actually just a regular reporting job. And so, and then I barely applied to any reporting jobs, and but that really worked out because I want to be doing reporting. I I feel like storytelling is such a an important part of the reason why I became a journalist. So that worked out. And then in North Carolina, that was for, so I was the course and law reporter for NC Policy Watch. NC Policy Watch is also a nonprofit. Like, so they cover a lot of statewide issues. And so I always knew that I kind of don't want to just do general assignments and daily news. And so that, but I also didn't have the experience and, and NC Policy Watch gave me the experience of doing both more longer term, like weekly stories and daily stories. And so, because I think that a lot of the long-term stories still come from the daily grind, if you will. And so like, if you don't even know what's going on in the state, it's hard for you to figure out like, what are some of the important issues that overlie kind of, or underlie these like events and, you know, kind of daily like meetings and all that. So I did that for a year and then Flatwater kind of, (laughs) Flatwater was new. Like, so it was founded by my boss, Matt Wynn, Matthew Hansen, and Matthew Hansen's my editor. So they started this and I just saw this and I just immediately thought that, wait, this is like a great opportunity and like Flatwater Free Press I mean, I've never heard of it. Like I, I'd never heard of it at that time. And but I knew of my boss, Matt, because he's all he used to be a data journalist at USA Today. And so we have a lot of mutual connections and all that. And so I've always admired their work and at the USA Today data team. And so I just thought it'd be a great opportunity to work with them. And then we also happen to know people within the data journalism community and so we kind of got in touch and then um because because I I asked him like so what do you think that I'll be doing if I come to the Flatwater and he said that it'll be mostly a mixture of or really like we could like because we're so new and all that and so he said that we could like really design our own path and we won't we wouldn't be doing any kind of daily stories. And then, so it's a lot of in-depth coverage. So I, I was definitely sold. And yeah, so I kind of, I've, before that I had never been to Nebraska and never had a particular interest in Nebraska, like per se, but I guess I came here for a visit and then like, then I kind of, thought the same thing okay well I definitely spent time in different sized cities and small towns and all that I could live in Nebraska and kind of figure out what's going on and if there's such a great opportunity to be doing things especially in a state that's like new to me and also like I didn't see a ton of Nebraska news and national news and so I was like okay I'll check it out and see what's going on there and here you are 
So some examples of things you wrote, I'm just going to read a list here and then ask a question. You wrote about a tire pile in a small town that turned into a much bigger story than just a tire pile. You wrote about how the Nebraska Parole Board, how attendance isn't great for board members at parole hearings. You localized the Supreme Court's latest abortion decision. You wrote about, you wrote it before the decision came down. On your personal website, you say, I truly believe in the power of storytelling that brings down barriers resonates with people, and affects social changes. What are some of the highlights of your work at Flatwater that have touched on those three things? I think that the tire pile story was definitely not something that I would normally do like before I came to Flatwater, and the, but then I did it anyways. And so right now the tire pile is cleaned up. And so I don't know if it's necessarily because of my story or other stories or you know, kind of the ongoing fight there. And so I think that's a pretty good example of just something that you don't necessarily kind of see every day and then, but you still go out and report and talk to people and see what's going on. And then you realize, okay, what's the kind of the undercurrents like that, like, again, resulted in things and how they stand. And so, and that story, for some reason, some of my former coworkers said that they really love the story and I, and we got some feedback from people. They love the story for some reason from Nebraska and out of Nebraska, like from, yeah, people who don't live in Nebraska. And so I guess that's just one example of how you make something interesting t to people. Can, and you just, then, can you just share what exactly the tire pile story was? Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> so the tire pile story is about this giant tire pile in this very small town in Elvo, this has just a little over 100 people. And so that tire pile was owned by one of the village board members. And he and another board member had a, so, so, so villagers wanted to recall both of them, but the village board voted not to hold the recall saying that it would cost too much money, but it was completely illegal. And so some villagers filed suit and then the board was forced by the court to hold the recall election. So that's the premise of the story and how there's a lot of small town fights, like how a lot of the village funds, people had a lot of questions about like where the funds went, if the funds were inappropriately used, just the kind of the really... <laughs> itty bitty small town story and why it matters because democracy was at stake right so yeah like that's one of the stories that I thought that had some sort of impact and could resonate with people because people care about democracy and uh how things could go wrong essentially so it's basically it's a small town kind of microcosm of potentially a, a larger a larger type of thing. So one of your bigger stories is a series of pieces dealing with unsafe drinking water. Nebraska has the highest pediatric cancer rate west of Pennsylvania, my state. Many of these cancers are linked to high nitrate levels because you can only have so much in the water. What has that been like to cover? When I was hired, I was made aware of this, like my bosses got a tip. And so they hired me essentially 
to do the series. And we knew that it's going to be a heavy lift. And so because nitrate, like I, like prior to coming here, I had no idea about what's nitrate. And of course, like in an ag state, that is a big problem because a lot of the the heavy agricultural presence, especially commercial fertilizers, is the main reason why nitrate is in water. And because there's a lot of nitrate leaching happening underground when you plant corn. And corn is, of course, the main crop of the state. And so, but like, what's the consequences? And a lot of people didn't know why applying excessive nitrogen fertilizer could be a problem when nitrogen and all kinds of nitrogen compounds uh, morph into nitrate. And the new research from the Nebraska or the University of Nebraska Medical Center showed a clear pattern that in areas with high nitrate levels, pediatric cancer rates were also high, both within the state and compared and for us to compare to the national average. So that is really the main reason why we wanted to do this series of stories. And as, of course, like uh, nitrate is not only in water in Nebraska, but also a lot of other states too. And then like the coverage around this has been kind of, I want to say there's been good coverage on certain things, but not to the extent where we kind of combine every aspect of like, why is there a problem? Like the health risks, the regulations that could result in lax enforcement and the cost of drinking water. And of course, like what are some of the solutions that could help us get clean water? So so our whole intention was to kind of tell the stories in a kind of multi-part way so that people could like not only care about this, but also to drive solutions and just really raise awareness for what's happening here. And hopefully, because it is a really complex issue and it's also kind of intangible if you can't really smell or drink or you can't you can't really smell or taste nitrate and um and drinking water and it's not and for like groundwater it's very hard for you to see it like how do you visualize nitrate leaching and all that so when I kind of came into the story we did months of research and requested documents and all that it was very clear to me I wanted to make it a little more tangible and like I said like I would want to make it more relatable for people who live in rural areas and who live in cities and then my editor really helped me a ton with doing the stories and how to and telling the stories and I when we had some really great help from our designers and photographers as well and that really made the multimedia storytelling possible so um yeah but of course there's a lot of pushback and and also (laughs) yeah that's the first lawsuit that I've ever involved in so interesting very interesting yeah for sure so after we got the tip and since we had months to like work with this I requested emails from the state department of environment and energy as kind of the DEQ equivalent in some other states and so I requested emails from employees 
that contain like four keywords related to nitrate, like nitrogen, fertilizer, stuff like that. And because I always like requesting emails from people if I can, so that you can like see what, of course, like public officials, so that you can see what they're talking about. So you can identify things that I may not have thought about and like in the first place. And so I asked for that from state employees and they gave us a pretty high quote. And so I narrowed down the the search to a certain time frame and to certain ND the state employees, but they still wanted to charge us more than $44,000 for five years worth of emails from about 80 employees. So we, and they said that it's because the, the, the fees are for the employees to determine if they're subject to public records law, because there's a lot of enforcement action between those employees and feedlot owners or info owners. And so they said that the records are subject to legal review, but they, but our, my understanding is that the state wanted to assign that to rank and file employees. And we think that it, that you can't really charge anything. You can't really charge people for lawyers to redact things essentially according to state's law, state laws. And so, yeah, so the, but yes. So I guess that's why we filed the lawsuit because like redaction shouldn't be something that the state chart charges us for. And so we are going through the court proceedings right now, I believe to fight for the rights to see those records and an ongoing story (laughs) yeah it is still ongoing so you work on these long-term stories rather than necessarily something that's on this day i'm doing this on this day i'm doing this on this day i'm doing this what is a day in the life like for you in the job right that kind of depends on the day i want to say we we normally have meetings every day to kind of check-ins with editors and so so yeah like and also colleagues I like to only focus on one on a certain date so for example I like to schedule all my interviews all on the same date or like field trips all together or when I'm writing I'll make an outline I'll make sure that I'm doing like only one thing at a time yeah but normally it starts with me going over edits with my editor or like or in the morning or oh no I take it back I mean like normally kind of go through kind of weekly goals and like daily tasks for the day and then I pretty much like do my own thing and then like in the office like we go into the office pretty much every day and then I sometimes make like field trips to like go out and report but most of the time we spend our time still in the office whether it be like doing phone interviews and writing or doing edits and I really enjoy like sitting together with my editor when I we're going through edits because it just like helps me a lot he'll give me feedback and I'll tell him like oh like it's probably not best set this way or it's like because sometimes I feel like our writing styles are very different so he tends to say things more clearly like because I before I came to this job I wrote things 
for like daily news quite a bit and then like I try to sometimes like you do a lot of like explanatory reporting it's a lot of just facts but he'll like spell things out a little bit more so it's just a different like writing style I want to say and then yeah and then for me I uh, I don't know of course like English is not my first language and I'll rely a ton on like oh if I say things correctly and all that so he's been very helpful in that regard too and yeah and then because to me he once said that I'm like more fully formed as a reporter than than a writer and I guess like people can go into different directions and so Mm. sometimes I think the one thing that I find challenging is sometimes I have all the all the notes from all my interviews I just want to include them all in the story but that you have to kind of kind of scale back a little bit like you can't just possibly include every minute detail in the story you have to like really be intentional and choose and kind of think about the end product of what people actually read so yeah that's like one thing that he helps me with quite a bit you're from obviously where you're from i noticed in looking at the masthead of your of Flatwater, that a lot of your colleagues are Nebraskans. Are there ways in which being an outsider and having that perspective benefits you? I think that I actually noticed that uh, during my reporting. Like a lot of people, not necessarily from the fact that I have like fresh eyes, but like a lot of people, they do see me as someone who's not from Nebraska and then they wanted to ask about my motivations and like why I came here. And then, so I think that actually helped me in some ways, of course, like hurt me in other ways that, okay, this appears to be a person who's, who has a clean slate, who doesn't have like a vested interest in certain topics, I guess. And so like, if I ask them to like explain things to me, they, they typically will. So I think that to me is probably a little more, um, I want to say that plays out a little more even than my kind of fresh eyes. And of course, like what, like having to go th- navigate kind of the setup of the, the legislature that's nonpartisan and, and also uh, there's only the state's Senate and all that, and they are, have, are term limited and all that. So that was a process. Um, and for me, I, I think, yeah, there's definitely a lot of things in Nebraska surprises me about, but I, yeah, I think that it is a, since we have Nebraskans and people like me, I think that I pretty much operate in a way that would like allow me to like work in any state. So like, it's like all based on the same questions of why things are like this here. And is that normal? So like, I guess when I had to attend a lot of village board meetings to like, to to just to see it for myself and I'll just go there and, and people sometimes would ask me questions and all that. And then I'll just like answer those. And of course I had a lot of interesting encounters at those meetings and I was like escorted out of prison to, I was like people declined to to do an interview and kind of flip-flop and all that yeah and to me I felt like that's just 
part of the process. Like I just learn my way around and then dealing with people, but trying to give them like trying to be as transparent as possible. I don't know if I deviated from your question, but no, that, that's um, fine. It actually segues into my next question. If you're willing to answer it, have you had to deal with any racism while working in the job? I wouldn't say overt racism because there's there could be like things that it's like not super like it's not racist on the surface, but it could be motivated by racism. But I don't think that I've experienced it firsthand. At least nothing people like said super overtly to me, like on the job. I was definitely like treated sometimes unfairly, I thought. No, I don't know. I couldn't say if it's like racism, like directly. How has being a journalist in the time that you have been shaped how you view the world? I think being a journalist, like the one of the most important things is curiosity, I think. And so I have, I think that now, since I've become a journalist, I always try to ask more questions. I don't, I think I take things for granted a little less often. And then if I know, because I'm super non-confrontational in real life. And so before I became a journalist, sometimes I'll just like, there are things that I shouldn't have said, but I'll like, sometimes I let it slide just because I didn't want to cause any sort of like conflict or anything. But right now, I think that once I really dig into it, I want to ask those questions. And then I, I wanted to just stand up for myself and people like me a little more. So I, I think that I've acted more on principles now. So if I see anything that's really shouldn't be done that way, I'd speak up a little more. And also I'll think, I'll try to think of ways to deal with that, that minimize the harm. And also, yeah. And then, you know, but still try to call out people when they do things that certainly shouldn't be done. Is there something in which you feel you have an expertise or that you've kind of established yourself in the brief time that you've been professional that you would give as <laughs> advice to an audience of aspiring journalists, or that might be perhaps a piece of advice related to working on long-term projects? I think that Nobody gets to do long-term projects like right off the bat, like what very few people could actually do it. But I think that for people, especially from kind of non-traditional backgrounds and who started in journalism, maybe like who even like who didn't major in journalism and who did not do any journalism jobs and, until later in their careers. And I just want to say, like, if you want to do it, you can do it. It might take a while, but just focus on every step that would take you to kind of long-term goal in journalism. And you could always design your own path and never let anyone tell you that you couldn't do it. And then also like for long-term projects, I think that one advice or kind of lesson I learned from my professors at Zoo was persistence matters more than anything in long-term projects. I think that might be true. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you it's definitely true. Okay.
the, so the show is titled The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your good work and ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work or person? Uh-huh, right. I could do two, actually. Sure. So I want to really give a shout out to the 19th for their really good coverage this year before and after the overturn of Roe v. Wade. I think that a lot of the their coverage has been really nuanced and also really did a really fantastic job following up on how it might affect people's lives and or how it has affected people's lives and um and especially around a topic that's very controversial and is very close to a lot of people's hearts and so I think that a lot of facts-based reporting is very important in today's day and age and also I also wanted to give my salute to MLK50 They've done such an amazing job kind of showing kind of economic injustice or like injustice in so many other ways rooted in racism and kind of the like in American history. And to me, that's really fascinating to read and also made me reflect on kind of uh, the history a ton and how it's still affecting people's lives today. So I really applaud their good work. Two great organizations. Yenchi Shu, thank you for taking the time to join us. A reporter for the Flatwater Free Press in Omaha, Nebraska. Okay, thank you. A reminder that you can find Yenchi's work at flatwaterfreepress.org. The Free Press focuses on investigations and feature stories that matter. It is Nebraska's first independent nonprofit newsroom. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.